welcome to First Impressions, yet another episode of the podcast where we talk about our love for Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all those haters. As usual, I'm Kristen and I am joined by Maggie. Hello. Hello, Maggie. Happy to be here as always, Kristen. <laughs> I mean, you have so much to, uh, to, to say today after our reread of Northern Abbey. Well, I always have a lot to say, but hopefully some of it will be a value this time. I know you're really charged and like pumped up to have reread it and to talk about it again after we went to Jasna, where the theme, uh, if you haven't listened to those episodes, was Northanger Abbey. After talking about Northanger Abbey for a long weekend without having reread it for a while, I thought, hey, we should reread this book so I can <laughs> yeah. talk about it with because actual intelligence. We really talked about it pretty lightly because we we did one episode, which was before we released the podcast, and we kind of outlined some of the interesting things about it, but I don't know that we did a ton of textual like interpretation. No, but I, I think that we should actually make this a two-parter. I'm just going to say right off the bat. Yeah, okay, we can do that because... This novel, I mean, when you reread it, because I had always considered it kind of more of a minor work. I mean, she was, she takes a little bit of a different tone. It is, it's so comic and, you know, and she's, she's on the theme of novels and writing. So you can see, you can almost see her progression as a writer in it. But actually, when you go back and you realize that the time she was working in and all the crappy novels she had to read, you realize what an incredible genius she was for such a young age, because this novel is hysterical and the, the jokes are actually pretty modern. I thought it was so fun. And I think I was telling you that I actually preferred to read it only like a chapter or two at a time because each one was just like this little morsel of goodness <laughs> to be to enjoyed. You have to hang over every delicious turn of phrase and the delightful jokes and the, the delightful parodies of people. And it's just, it's all around. It's just a delight. It's, it's, it's a mini masterpiece. I'll call it that. Well, speaking of mini masterpieces, I think we have a new segment to introduce to the podcast. You. So when we were lucky enough to go to Jasmine in Williamsburg, um, I picked up a copy of The Daily Jane Austen, which is a year of quotes. Um, which was edited by Devaney Lozer. Um, so that there's a different Austin quote for every day. And they're from all that, you know, there's no uh, rhyme or reason. There's, they're just from all the books and even the juvenilia. And I opened it to November 16th. Today's November 16th, although the podcast probably won't be published for another couple of weeks. Um, and you will not believe, Maggie, guess what book the quote is from. Um, is it from Northern Arabi? It, in fact, is. Oh, oh my God. Is. And not only that, but it dovetails so beautifully with what I want to talk about. So let me just read it. It's a short passage from Northanger Abbey. The speakers are Henry Tilney and Eleanor Tilney. And you'll probably recognize it as when they're on their walk with Catherine in the, um, they're actually taking their walk, which the heroine was most unnaturally able to keep. So it starts out, and the first speaker is Henry Tilney. What am I to do? You know what you ought to do. Clear your character handsomely before her. Tell you that you think very highly of the understanding of women. Miss Moreland, I think very highly of the understanding of all the women in the world, especially of those, whoever they may be, with whom I happen to be in company. That is not enough. Be more serious. Miss Moreland, no one can think more highly of the understanding of women than I do. In my opinion, nature has given them so much 
that they never find it necessary to use more than half. We shall get nothing serious from him now, Miss Morland. He is not in a sober mood. But I do assure you that he must be entirely misunderstood if he can ever appear to say an unjust thing of any woman at all or an unkind one of me. Yay! Yay. <laughs> so every, when I was reading this book, every time Henry would say something, I was remembering what you had joked about Kevin, I think, and you joked about this on the podcast. Yeah. This is Kristen's husband, where he likes to make misogynistic jokes in front of her, but he does it in an ironic way to point out in an effort to show how dumb saying misogynistic things is. And then the and I feel like that is Henry. T I was like, he's he's Kevin. <laughs> yeah, he Kevin is most like Henry Tilney of all the um, it, Austin heroes for sure. He really doesn't say things that are serious very often. I actually I find him very charming, and a lot of that has to do with JJ Field, right? Of course. All right. But he was kind of annoying in this for me. Oh my God. So that, it just dovetails perfectly with what I want to talk about because I always felt that people who like hadn't seen the movie and who have still said that Henry Tilney was their absolute favorite Austin hero hero. Um, I was always a little surprised by that because certainly for the first half or even, you know, three quarters of the book, he is a little one note and he's mm -hmm. often just saying satirical things without like a lot of heart or you know every once in a while he'll make an observation on how what a good-natured person Catherine is even that comes a little bit towards the end of their time in in bath when he's starting to be more interested in her but yeah his his conversation is so witty but it's almost like he's in love with his own wit yeah for sure and i always thought that Catherine was enchanted by him just because that kind of wit was so new to her and fascinating to her. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it goes over her head, though, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. She's just puzzled and confused and intrigued by it. I could see hanging out with Henry Tilney, it's, you could do it in small doses. But then after an extended period, I would just be exhausted by him. Yes. Do you know so what I mean? They speak plainly, sir. Like, what, what is your point, Henry? Like, what are you trying to say? I would just get really frustrated, I think, after hanging out with him for a long time when all he does is be sparkling wit. He's amusing himself. I think he does change by the end of the novel. Yes. And I think the novel does not make that explicit. It only only really talks about Catherine's evolution. But when you sort of read between the lines or, like, take a look at his actions, he does change and grow in depth. And Catherine almost teaches him to do that through her, the goodness of her character. The more he is exposed to her way of thinking and being, the more he appreciates it. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it's like Pride and Prejudice for me in that when I was reading the very end, I'm like, they both changed. <laughs> they did, and Austin is not necessarily <laughs> presented that way. But this is the perfect time. If you don't mind, I am going to talk about, um, before we got on the podcast, I was reading a lot of critical analysis of Northanger Abbey to sort of enlighten myself to some of this stuff. And I read, I went to Jasna's Persuasions Online, which is their, um, it's not a newsletter, it's a peer-reviewed publication now, but it's, it's where people publish essays about Austin and her works. And I came across one by George Justice. Sorry, George What Justice. an amazing name. He used to be in a comic book. <laughs> 
I know, a husband. The district attorney in like Metropolis <laughs> or in Gotham. George yeah, Justice. Or, or the Austin murder mysteries that you uh, proposed a little while yes, ago. Yes, he can be the local barrister. Or the, <laughs> the, the, the uh, I guess, whatever local nobleman was serving as the. Oh, the magistrate. The ju- yeah, the magistrate. George Justice. George Justice. A little on the nose, don't you think? Oh my God, like, we need to write that. We need to write a series of books called the Jane Austen Mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote this essay in 1998, um, where he frames the novel as a novel about courtship, and his insights about it are so fascinating. And the first thing he says, which I did not know, is that back in history times, in Austen's time, in history times. <laughs> Yeah, I, my brain like skipped over like late 18th, early 19th. We all know when she lived. That's fine. History times. Gotcha. History times. Um, there was something called the courtship novel. So there were gothic novels, but courtship novels were also about, you know, the heroine be, being courted. And the book is about a lot of different kinds of bad courtship, none of which is ultimately that successful. Um but this is so fascinating because Henry brings to the story a kind of courtly wit where he, he's almost witty for wit itself. And he sort of exemplifies the hero of a courtship novel. Um, so actually, both of the characters, Catherine and Henry, are main characters from stories written by bad writers. We never, we never necessarily get that explicitly explicit send up of Henry and the courtship novel as we get the explicit send up of Catherine and the Gothic novel, but um, it really shows his hollowness at the beginning of the story. It's only when they sort of break free of the conventions of their respective genres that they tr- become truly in love. And uh, Justice says Austin contrasts proper human relationships by the send-ups of bad convention in literature. And I just love to think of Austin reading all these horrible books and being like, this is so dumb. I could do so much better yeah. than this. That's a that's a really excellent point that Henry and Catherine are each in their own different genre of book. And then they both kind of figure out like, hey, I should just be a real person at the end. <laughs> they learn to be real people. And 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 Henry, you know, is obsessed by language. So he's a, uh, an excellent satire on modern language. He's interested in wordplay. And I'd call Eleanor, it a nice book. Yeah, Eleanor Tilney even says, you are more nice than wise. Yeah. Both of them are more something than they are wise. But right? see, that's just really annoying. It's like when my, it's, uh, people who do that, when you like misspeak or maybe not use a, a word of exact precision, or it's like, hey, can I have the remote? Sure, you can <laughs> have the remote. It's like, Henry, give me the fucking remote. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, my meaning was not unclear to you. Yeah. That is the point of language. I don't need to say, Henry, may I please have the remote control? You know what I mean? Like, that to me, it's really annoying yeah. when people do that. And I feel like at the beginning, Henry Tilney would actually be the bitchy, witty gay best friend of the heroine he was called metrosexual uh at jasna i forget now by who but they were pointing out he had a lot of feminine interests like he loves novels but couldn't you see him just be like you don't want to have that be the main character because (laughs) you don't want to overuse that 
that kind of, of personality. But yeah. he's definitely the gay bitchy best friend of except he's the love interest. But <laughs> but it's like you were saying, once once you grow as a person and break free of that kind of um, constraints of your genre, you can be a fully realized person. I have to like write a paper. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. And it's so true. And I, you should write, you should write a paper. About Henry Tilney, gay best friend? Gay best friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that he doesn't have a, a, like a sexual intrigue about him. Um, but his vanity is certainly sent up at yes. least one, it, several times, including the time when they're on that walk where he's like discoursing on the picturesque and then he starts talking about enclosures. And it was like, then from there, it was a short step to politics and then <laughs> the silence. <laughs> and what I think is so interesting too, from that narrative perspective, I don't know if this struck you at all, Maggie, but there are the passages where the narrator is the confused Gothic novelist who's like, everything's all wrong about this. This is unnatural, um, writing from the Gothic perspective. But there are so many funny parts which have an Austin-esque narrator st- narrative style where they're making fun of even real people and their foibles, just like Austin does in the other books. Mm-hmm. I think most of those places I touched on when the narrator was kind of describing Catherine's viewpoint of things or people like when they're on the walk and they, she doesn't know anything about drawing so Eleanor and Henry are describing what makes for a good um view for a picture and stuff she, she get, it was something like she looked down at Bath and realized that it would not be good for this beautiful city it was actually not very good for drawing at all the sky was far too blue. Like the day was far too fine. It needed to be gray and overcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that, that's not the perspective of the Gothic novelist. That's the perspective of Austin, the modern satirist of behavior, expectation, and the foibles of people. Yeah. I think she kind of uses Catherine's inner, describing Catherine's inner thoughts and feelings to make those type of jokes. Like Catherine herself wouldn't get it as a joke. Oh no. Yeah, exactly. But the reader understands that there's a lot of irony happening here, happening here with the way Catherine sees the world. Yeah. And then there's almost a third narrative uh, mode that gets slipped into when we're hearing the thoughts of Catherine, like Arnie said at Jasna, the, the, the narrative is heavily co- colored also by what Catherine thinks. So it slips into this sort of language, like maybe people weren't always the most agreeable and yeah. maybe nice men could be disagreeable too. And it, and it's this very, as like Socratic as, uh, as she was described um, sort of a mode. So this this narrator has such range and it's always intelligible. We always get the joke and it's almost switching between modes. Certainly Isabella is never, Isabella Thorpe is never framed in the Gothic context. She's framed in the Austin-esque, I'm making fun of people context when it says things like, she bid Catherine adieu with the laughing eye of utter despondency. Yeah, right? she's nothing but a comedic character and I think the narrator makes fun of her through the whole thing oh yeah um one of the parts I love I have so many I just really liked reading it (laughs) so this whole time anytime Isabella did anything I was just thinking like what a bitch (laughs) Uh, um and the best part was when she write at the very end after the engagement with Catherine's brother has broken up and she writes Catherine the letter at Northanger 
And it says basically, you know, please write to your brother on my behalf. I'm, I don't understand why he left in such, maybe he has a cold. He seemed in such a state. I think there might have been some confusion. But why don't you clear it up? And Catherine's like, uh, no. And then she's kind of upset about the loss of this friendship because they had been so close. And I love how Henry and Eleanor are basically like, are you upset though? <laughs> and then Catherine's like, yeah, she was a total bitch. I'm not upset at all. And then that's it. <laughs> she just like has this moment of realization where it was this toxic friendship. And she's and then, like, no, I'm actually not upset. This you is know, fine. I think I'm okay with it. She's a bitch. And I'm good. <laughs> that's one of the passages where Henry's language changes from like satire to like the language of real feeling. Because at first he's like, of course you feel this way. Of course you feel like you could never go on. And it's like this fake, almost like he's assuming the fake gothic uh, drama. And yeah. then when she was like, you know what? I don't think so. And then he says, you feel what is of credit, most of credit to the human nature and switches back into the Henry who's thinking about and very much aware of the excellencies of her character, as it's put. She's saying, uh, well, are you sure that you'll be upset? And Catherine's, no, said Catherine after a few moments reflection. I do not. Ought I? To say the truth, though I am hurt and grieved that I cannot still love her, that I am never to hear from her, perhaps never to see her again. I do not feel so very, very much afflicted as one would have thought. <laughs> uh, and I, But I also like how he does switch back to being his typical silly self. And he's like, oh, aren't you, wouldn't, like, she's missed out on such a good sister-in-law. Eleanor, <laughs> wouldn't you love to have a sister-in-law like Catherine? And Eleanor's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Henry. Such a sister-in-law would delight. Yeah, it's such a sweet passage where they do transition into what's fake about gothic emotion and what's real about their emotion about Catherine. I still, I think, though, that he doesn't necessarily think of her that way yet when he makes that joke. But Eleanor is like, yeah, that would be great to have a sister-in-law like Catherine. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how much he's he's honestly thinking about her. I know at this point that he has been directed to gain her heart, right, by General okay. Tony. Which so. is interesting. Let me ask you this. In the film adaptation, the good one, I was always under the impression that the general wanted to marry Catherine himself. Really? And that's why he brought, there's a line of dialogue, I think, that Eleanor says when she kicks Catherine out. That made me think that. So he was actually interested in marrying Catherine himself when he thought she was rich. And, well, I mean, in the book, very clearly he means Henry to marry her. Right. Um, and did, in the movie, did you always think it was that he wanted Henry to marry her? Yes. Is that your interpretation? Okay, maybe I'm just being completely crazy. Well, he's always setting up... Like he's setting up the country walk or whatever. And then he says, you will excuse me now. Right. Or he leaves and he leaves yeah, her with true. him. Um, and so, I, I mean, I could see it going either way. And certainly to the practical end uh, to his idea of marriage, it's very equivalent to him marrying her himself because he's getting her money in his family. Yeah, that's and that's. True. That's what marriage means to him, right? Yeah. So it's there's a, there's certainly a close equivalence between his desire for Catherine and what he would normally think of as a marriage being about. Yeah, and the book is very explicit that 
he wanted Henry yes. to marry her. Yes. yes. Um, I just loved her character so much in this. Um, her arc, I thought, was so good. It just made so... It was just really beautifully done. And I just... It was really... You know, we talk about these coming-of-age stories and yeah. things like that. But it was just really fun to watch her growth and maturity. When you reread the scene where she tumbles out with all of her suspicions to Henry. What was your reaction? I know when we were we were having a casual conversation with uh, Deborah Yaffe about the book at Chesna, and we were kind of saying, that's not real smart. I mean, when people say that Catherine isn't smart, I think it all focuses around why she would blurt it out to him, but it's become so real to her. Do you mean um, when he catches her in his mother's yes. chamber? I don't think she really does tumble it all out, though. He intuits. She just says, uh, she talks about, like, her dying so suddenly, none of you being at home. I thought maybe. And then he knows where she's going and calls yeah. her out on it. But she never says, I thought your dad killed your mom. <laughs> no. But, but I, I think, think she, she she's asked- not capable of artifice. He's like, what are you doing here, basically? She's not capable of being like, oh, uh, I was just checking out this room because I heard it was cool. Do you know what I mean? Like, she's right. not a good liar. She's not. Right. She doesn't even know how to do that. She always assumes everyone is a good person. Everyone tells the truth. And actually, what I liked the best is she was ashamed of herself before he even got there. If you read it, she walks into the room. She's built it all up in her head. She walks in and it's just this really nice, beautiful room. There's sunshine coming in through two sash windows. Astonishment and doubt first seized them and a short, shortly succeeding ray of common sense added some bitter emotions of shame. So I love that she actually is ashamed of herself before anyone calls her out. She just <laughs> gets in there and... Bit- unusual that she would then still say some of that stuff to Henry but again like he he was she tried to kind of get away without (laughs) admitting why she was there well first of all she was very surprised to see him he's like oh didn't you know this is the fastest route blah blah like uh no I didn't know that I thought it was in the middle but she's just so incapable of hiding the truth or her emotions that she doesn't really, I mean, they go off on a whole conversation about Isabella writing before they even start talking about. So her only, her only um, defense is basically to try to distract him, but he's not, he's not buying it. He wants to know why she's there, but I just, I don't know. I just really appreciate, I didn't remember that she was ashamed of herself before he chastises her. And I appreciated that. I appreciate actually, now that you have said that, that's actually really important point that it's her honesty which forces her out with it not necessarily her ongoing suspicion or desire to tell him that stuff i don't think Catherine morland ever tells a lie in the entire book no in fact it says explicitly she could not tell a falsehood even to please isabella when isabella's like my dear one wasn't it a delightful afternoon when they were yeah. like out driving yeah. Which is just, it's interesting that um, her morality at the center of the story still allows her to conjecture. It's really kind of how gothic novels have sort of a little bit twisted her 
that her like very strong sense of morality, how she normally assumes that other people would behave the same way as herself. And it, Henry even says how little trouble it can give you to discern other people's motives. And that it's the Gothic literature who that gives her the ability to discern other people's motives yeah. but in a very twisted way. She's just a sponge. She's just young and she absorbs everything and sort of is learning about the world by testing hypotheses. And this was just one more hypothesis that she was testing is like, could this be what I've been reading about? And honestly, when I was 17, 18, I had a lot of wacky, you know, I wasn't like a fully formed thinker. So I think I can forgive her that. I am going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that Catherine is actually the most moral, I don't know if moral is the right word. She is the most, quote, good of all the Austin heroines. And I include that, I say that because everyone always wants to point to Fanny Price as this, like, moral Christian bastion, right? Right. But Fanny's super judgmental. Yeah. And I just think Catherine, I, I texted you this earlier. To me, Catherine is a young Jane Bennett. Yes. She always thinks well of people. She always assumes people are telling the truth and acting rightly. She always wants to do the right thing herself. It's true. And she does not have Elizabeth's wicked sense of humor. Time will tell whether she she develops Henry's or whether she just continues to let him be witty and appreciate that. Oh, I think that they're actually a great match. And I think it's because she will always be sweet and kind and nice. But she will always laugh at his jokes. Yeah, she and will if he ever goes him. too far, she will be like the moral center for him. She always gives him honest feedback about what he says. She, you know, like when he's like marriage and dancing are the same. She doesn't go like, like oh, uh huh, oh, uh-huh. how interesting, you know. Yeah, or I see she, what you're saying, but I disagree. <laughs> and I like how she, if she thinks something is wrong, she stands up for herself. It says like Catherine could also be stubborn. Yes, uh, <laughs> where she like, felt herself they, to be right. When they wanted her to lie and yeah. to go out with them, to go to Blaze Castle mm-hmm. um, and cancel her plans, she did not give in no matter how much they tried to persuade her. When John Thorpe goes and lies to the Tilneys on her behalf, I would have slapped the shit out of him. Oh, I know. That was <laughs> so rude. But let me tell you something interesting about that, because I love that you brought that up, because Thorpe, so I read another essay um, on in Persuasions Online by Ellen Moody, who is an uh, English professor, at, or was, at George Mason University, so I knew who she was. Like, I used to be on the same lift serves with her. She she does has done a lot of reading of, this, of Austen's era and read a lot of Gothic stuff, and what she points out is that Thorpe is a Gothic villain in a couple of there are a couple of parallels and one of those things is how he's always constantly trying to abduct Catherine lying to get her company when he when he she is in his carriage and she sees the Tilneys and realizes that she's been deceived and she's shouting stop stop what is the description of him he only laughed made odd noises you know, call to his horses to go faster, that kind of thing. It was, it's a very scary moment where she is not in control of her own bodily autonomy. It's like a Gothic abduction in, in, a, in a parallel to it. Well, I think, well, what Jane Austen is doing, right, is she's taking these things that typically 
happen in gothic novels and just using them, but in a real life way. Yes. Well, Moody goes a step farther and she says, look, gothic novels in their time were about the violence of men towards women. Mm -hmm. And while they may seem unnaturally drawn, uh, are not out of the realm of anecdotes that women might have heard about men being abusive. Um, There was, I I looked this up in Unbecoming Conjunctions, which is uh, Jay Height Stevenson's um, book or collection of essays. And... um, There was a neighbor of Jane Austen called Lord Portsmouth who was actually educated by Jane Austen's father in his school that he was running, right, for young boys, who was a sadist. Mm -hmm. And it was right in her neighborhood. And it was well known. He tortured animals. He had a servant who um, had a broken leg. And he went in and rebroke the guy's leg while it was healing. I mean, he was a monster. And so while she had actual, an actual, at least one actual example of someone being as evil as a gothic hero could be, she wanted to bring it back to like how people act in real life, but it wasn't so unusual to th- say that Catherine was wrong to believe that General Tilney could act in an evil way. I mean, they did have lots of real life examples, and that's why gothic novels resonated with young women in the first place, or you know, in general. Right. So you're not gonna, you're not necessarily going to fall in with. A handsome highwayman who murders and steals and takes you, abducts you to a castle. But you might actually end up talking to a jerk who will lie to you. Yeah. And not and stop the And even low-key abduct yeah. you. <laughs> like, wasn't it? Violence against women was not out of the realm of possibility. But she, Catherine also lives this pastoral uh, idyllic life where at one point, Isabella says, oh, the men are shocking. And Catherine says, well, they've always behaved very well towards me. Mm-hmm. And it's this gothic novel that introduces the idea that men can be violent towards women. Right. No, I agree. Sorry. I sorry, I don't have anything <laughs> exciting to say after that. I just agreed. <laughs> but, but do you, th- I mean, when you are with Catherine at Northanger Abbey, do you, th- I think we, it's shown that her suspicion of General Tilney is coming from a real seed of her knowledge, her new knowledge that men can be violent towards women. Uh, I guess. I think she also observes him being so controlling. Yes. If not physically abusive, then manipulative and controlling, which I see as a form of like emotional abuse. So I just, so we talked about this a little at Jasna and I think on our last podcast, but to me, there is a gothic heroine, but it's not Catherine, it's (laughs) Eleanor. She really is. She's been abducted in a way. Yeah, she's, this poor girl, mother died huge house left trapped there basically if not trapped if not explicitly by her father then by the societal conventions which do not allow her to go out into the world as she wants to um very little company i mean before catherine comes to visit her henry's only there like what four days a week so yeah, it's just her and her dad, like, stuck in this big rambling abbey. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And that tone of her, when we think of her with him, essentially imprisoned in her house, that hits a gothic note, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and they're so happy when the general leaves. I know. <laughs> so they're sad. So, oh, they're, they're free like, from oh, all restraints. Finally, we have the such movie, a good time. 
the movie does a really good job of capturing that too. Yeah, we can eat when we want. We can walk where we want. We're no longer constrained. They have so much more freedom to enjoy their friendship. I, and you know, before she gets kicked out the day before, and I think they do this just to make it. Austin does this to make the uh, Catherine's abrupt leaving is very much of a shock to the reader. Is that she, you know, set wants to broach to Eleanor? Well, you know, maybe it's time for me to leave. She didn't want to leave, but you know, politeness dictates that after a month's stay, perhaps I should offer. And Eleanor's like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Please don't leave me. (laughs) But it was just, it made it so sad to me that she was so desperate to have Catherine stay. It's weird how, this is a total tangent. I love that scene. But I, um, in their language, it seems that in Austin's day, they were allowed to be more blunt with each other than than we would be comfortable with today. Like um, Eleanor says... Uh, she thought a much longer visit had been promised. She was misled, perhaps by her wishes. So she does soften it. But to say I was misled to your friend, um, even though it, it is softened, softened by, oh, I per- I, perhaps I was with, misled. And then parenthetical, perhaps by my wishes, right? To even say that kind of a thing or to oppose. I, I think you were just allowed because conversation was the only thing that you had. Uh, to have a little opposition for the sake of talking about something, right? Um, I think that what you're, I think what we're trying to get around is civil discourse That's because still allowed for because opposition. language was so formal and people's baseline was total civility and politeness. You can have conversations about things like that without wor- as much worry of giving offense. Although I know Catherine was worried about giving offense. But the point is, when you do have formal language, you can say things like this, and it's presented in a way that it's not going to devolve. Into- you don't need to worry about Catherine yeah, and Eleanor me. screaming at each other. No, that's true. Well, and, and Eleanor's so much better at it, probably maybe because of Henry's influence or natural, I don't know. But um, when you contrast Catherine's speech to Eleanor's speech, Catherine interrupts her when she's in the middle of talk, a speech about something very different yeah. and says, oh, I think I must go away. And Eleanor expresses her concern in this sort of high-flown language. And then Catherine says, oh, because I have been here so long. Um, and she's not using the formal language mm-hmm. of we're doing this delicate dance of civility. She's just speaking from the heart. And um, then Eleanor says, nay, if you can use such a word, you know, and which is a, another thing where they're focusing very much on the, on the language and what her underlying feelings might be and deducing that from language. Whereas Catherine is just going to tell you. Right. <laughs> like, but also, tell you. like you don't, if there is a misunderstanding, it will be corrected through just like polite conversation. Yeah. Well, how much did you love the passage where that Catherine and the um, Henry Tilney at the opera where he comes after he's been oh, slighted oh, by okay, her? Okay, okay, okay. So you're talking about where John Thorpe told Catherine that the walk with with the Tilneys was off. But then she passed them and they're like, WTF, where are you going? And so they think that she just like stood them up and didn't care. So then they give her the cold shoulder. There's a lot of misunderstandings there. They give her, she thinks they're giving them like the very cold shoulder. 
Yes. Um, and Austin goes into the gothic phase where she's like, instead of being offended on her own behalf that anyone could think she's done anything rude or immoral, instead of being the, the, the proud, cold, having been insulted gothic heroine who, who, lead, who allows them to discover the misunderstanding by chance, she just wants to go and tell them how sorry she is. And then we, when Henry comes to her, um, she explains himself and she's like, why were you less generous than your sister? He's like, what are you talking about? I could have no right to be offended. And she's like, no one would have thought you had no right who had seen your face. And so she is also getting at the emotion that he felt underneath this courtly, you know, behavior, this courtly dance. Right. Well, maybe he doesn't also want to admit that a 17-year-old not going no, to talk with not. him actually not. hurt He's not going to admit his real feelings about but that. But see, this yeah. is why this is why I love Catherine, and I think, uh, well, I mean, I also do this too, but if she messes up or feels like she's offended you, she, it tears her up, and she yeah. can't stand the idea. It's such, it's such a likable characteristic of yes. hers, and she has to put it right, and she has to explain herself. And I just think it's adorable. I do this too, man. It I just do it like, too. Absolutely. just destroys me. And then half the time they're like, what are you talking about? Well, I once got an email <laughs> from a friend who was like, you said this thing and, you know, I didn't feel comfortable with you saying that to me. And I immediately started bawling. Oh, no. And Bay's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, so and so's mad at me. I said something. Oh, my God. I have to explain myself. And so I like wrote her back immediately and was like, but this, I, I was continuing our conversation. Like, I'm so sorry, please forgive me, blah, blah. Um, and I've always told people that if you have a problem with, if I've done something, just please tell me. <laughs> because I am never intending to hurt you. And, and that's the thing that really bothers me about some relationships where if you go to somebody and tell them that they've hurt you, you are the monster for implying that the, they could possibly have done anything wrong. And it's, you, you know, because you got upset, it's your fault. Everything's your I'm fault. I'm sorry you were offended. That yeah, I'm sorry you were offended. Apology. Yeah. And I think, yeah, but for me, it's just, I, I don't like it when people hold grudges. No, I'd rather just know, right? Can we just talk it out? And if it's not, if like something happens and you don't want to be friends with me anymore, that's fine. But just do tell me. Right. You know, and do, do someone the, the courtesy of telling, but people, and this, I was also going to make this point earlier when you were talking about how people back then seemed more open about talking about things. People now are so afraid of confrontation because yes. it can devolve right. that people aren't, are afraid to have these kind of, are afraid to tell each other these things. It's like, right. well, I'd rather just sit here in misery and be unhappy than actually tell you what's bothering me. I don't I'd understand that mindset. I'd rather vent and, like, to all my friends about how much I hate you. <laughs> and, like, yeah. why can't you just do normal things like talking about in my back at the, like, yeah. it drives me. <laughs> <laughs> or Kathy Griffin, where she makes the joke, like, I talk about people behind their back. It's called manners. <laughs> But then things never come out and then things never get resolved. And then it's a problem for sure. Um, absolutely. I like to, uh, my brother is such a non-confrontational guy that he'll just like sit somewhere and be mis. I could say it's just like being Midwestern because there's such a like strong desire to not rock the boat, not cause trouble. I'll just live in my misery rather than <laughs> um, chance 
bothering someone. Yeah. So at the restaurant, I'll ask a server for more ketchup. And he's like, what are you doing? It's so embarrassing. Oh my God. And I'm like, well, I want more ketchup. And he's like, I think he said this to me once. He was like, you're supposed to just sit there and want it and not get it like a normal person. <laughs> Once I um, convinced Kevin, I talked him into getting a massage because he was sore or whatever. And um, he came back. He's like, I hated it. And I was like, why? And he's like, it hurts so bad. And I was they like, you're so the same thing. They did the same thing, Kristen. Oh, my God. <laughs> we got, like a, they didn't want to, like, seeing him that they couldn't take it. Was it like a masculine pride thing? Not a, no, we got a couple's massage. And I, I'm like, oh, that was so relaxing. He's like, oh, I. I was actually very uncomfortable. It was too rough. And I said, why didn't you think something? Say less pressure. But his response, it was not that he, it was a masculine thing. He's like, well, I didn't want to make them feel bad or bother them. Right. You're literally paying this person (laughs) to touch your body. They want, I said, they want you to enjoy it. If If you enjoy it, you won't go back and spend more money. I can't laugh at them too much because I have um, student employees well, now. I know that you're not big on confrontation either, Kristen. Well, I know. It's, <laughs> yes, that is true. But here's how bad I am. I have student employees and, um, you know, they do their homework at the desk, which is fine. That's that's what they're allowed to do. But if I have a project for them, I will approach and I'll be like, do you think you would have oh, time? Oh, God. Oh, you're the worst. <laughs> The passive aggressiveness of it is the worst. I can't understand. They're always like, yeah, of course. You know, they're always like so willing. Like, this is the deal. I work for you. And I'm, I always feel like this this guilt about even asking them to uh, do anything. I know. I that's Maybe that's one of the reasons why I like Catherine is because I don't want to say blunt because that makes it sound like it's rude. But she's never afraid to speak up, I guess. And right. if she messes up, she apologizes and feels awful and wants to make it right. But she's not going to not say what she wants. I know. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. But, and how mortified was she when she realized that Mr. Allen thinks that going out in a carriage with a guy is an a, open carriage. An open carriage is not appropriate. And she says to Mrs. Allen, why didn't you tell me that I would always want to know if you think I'm doing something wrong? Um, and so she almost, she's not really meaning to reproach her, but she's just so horrified by the situation. She's, you know, needs, she needs to, to express it in some way. Like, how could you have not told me that I was doing Well, Mrs. Allen's the worst. Ah, Austin is She's the ultimate people pleaser though, isn't she? Where she just like says whatever she wants just to like go along with what the person she's talking to wants. Oh, it's so true. And and I even love the caricature of her and Mrs. Thorpe just talking over each other and they don't want to <laughs> listen to each other. They just want to talk, which is hysterical. Mm-hmm. And um, even the time when Catherine is like, oh, no, it's going to rain when Miss Tilney is going to come. And she keeps asking Mrs. Allen what she thinks. And Mrs. Allen's like, I'm sure it'll be a very fine day if only the clouds will go off and the sun yeah. will come out. And then later she's like, oh, it's raining just as I thought. And then later <laughs> she's like, well, anyone would have thought it would have been a fine day. And like, it's just like, as you said, an inactive good temper um, and silliness, just silliness. I don't know. I just really enjoyed Catherine. I think that she would be cool to be friends with. Yes. And I wasn't very kind to her in our first. Yeah. 
<laughs> dumb. She's not dumb. No, no, she's not. Oh, speaking of which, let me read one of the passages I really enjoyed. Speaking about Catherine being dumb, um, she's not dumb. And they're talking about reading. Let me find this part. So they're having a conversation. This might be on their walk. They're talking about what they all like to read. And Catherine is talking about how she mostly reads novels. Um, and he's saying, well, don't you like history? And she's like, well, uh, no. History, real solemn history, I cannot be interested in. And Eleanor is like, oh, okay, well, I like history. And Catherine says, I wish I were too. I read it a little as a duty, but it tells me nothing that does not either vex or weary me. The quarrels of popes and kings with wars or pestilences in every page. The men all so good for nothing and hardly any women at all. It is very tiresome. And yet I often think it odd that it should be so dull for a great deal of it must be invention. The speeches that are put into the hero's mouths are thoughts and designs. The chief of all this must be invention and invention is what delights me in other books. So, Catherine does not like reading about history, not because she's not interested in history, but because she knows <laughs> that the history she's reading is incredibly biased, is mostly made up, right. is not accurate, and is weighted heavily with a patriarchal view. <laughs> and so she would not understand what I'm talking about, but she stumbles into like actual historical ana analysis of historical documents by accident. She's like, well, I don't like this thing because I'm, it's not well done. She points out the bias. She's, she's I know, woke. it's amazing. I was, just, woke. I was like, holy shit, when I was reading it. <laughs> Especially, it, yeah, absolutely right. Especially the the men also good for nothing and hardly with any women at all. And she can certainly distinguish fact from fiction when she's reading history, right? And so I bet if she actually read real history, she would not have that reaction to it. She just doesn't want to read uh, English history at the time, which was just completely biased, and you know the winners write the history. Right. Uh, I don't know. I just, I just, I love I, that passage. That is a great so passage. I love, I love that observation. I, it would never have occurred to me. I was going to ask you something on another tangent to go back to the idea of Eleanor Tilney being the gothic heroine. Okay. Is there a hint of gothicness in Elizabeth Bennett's mother trying to sell her off? essentially, and marry her for money? Um, no. <laughs> it is far more prosaic than that. Mrs. Bennet is a comedic character. She, the, well, first of all, she doesn't actually, okay, so if she was gothic, she would be cruel. Okay, here's the thing. She is cruel. Her cruelty really would be overt her selling off her daughters would be literal gothic novels to me are very literal mrs bennett's cruelty mr bennett's cruelty mrs bennett's greed but it comes from her wanting them to be taken care of like her actual sense of survival 
Yeah. It doesn't no, come from her. Like Miss General Tilney is a perfect example of actually being a gothic parent, I think. Because he is emotionally abusive. He is literally trying to get his son to marry someone for her, you know what I mean? For her mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. Um, Mrs. I don't see any gothic in either of the Bennets because they're not even foibles because it's uh, stronger than foibles. Their negative personality traits come from a place of realness and a more critique of the society that Jane Austen was living in. Is Anne Elliot a proto-Gothic heroine? Because her mother is dead. So she's checked that one off the list. I feel Anne is more of a tragic character. Not to say that a Gothic heroine can't also be tragic, but again, these other books, and even Northanger Abbey, are so grounded in reality I think to be gothic, you it's a hyper-real world. Uh, the, the people's villains are actual mustache-twirling villains. Right. Um, evil, <laughs> yeah, like literally, right? Evil is actual overt evil. The evil of Jane Austen's other books and the tragedy of her other characters are much more grounded in real life events and possibilities so no, i see I, Anne Elliot. she's definitely like, a tra- i don't see any of the gothic in the other books right. if that's what well, we're going for and that's just my interpretation no i see what you're saying but i in the in the in the spirit of like oh i've identi- identified a gothic heroine and it's eleanor tilney she's not necessarily actually being portrayed it's just the parallels between her life story and what a yeah. gothic heroine's life story would be like she takes mother dying controlling father her will is thwarted she's kept in a place she doesn't want to be and you know Anne's will is thwarted by her family and she's sort of forced to go to bath against her will so it in the in the tragicness of Anne, i was just wondering you know because we've analyzed northanger abbey from the gothic yes, i was just wondering you- if it there's a false assumption here. I'm not saying you because we know other people make it and we will talk about it when we talk about the 1980s version of the film. Northanger Abbey is not a gothic novel. No, no. Right. And so that Eleanor Tilney kind of ticks gothic heroine boxes, but she's not a gothic heroine because she's not in a gothic story. Nobody in Jane Austen's books, I think, are you have to be in a gothic story to be <laughs> a gothic heroine. <laughs> But that is why I so enjoyed Catherine's journey, because she keeps trying to find the gothic in the real world. Yeah, right. But she's not in a gothic novel. <laughs> <laughs> no, girl, I, you're not a gothic. You're not in a gothic novel. You are in a novel, but to you, you're in the real world. So there's these little elements, which is why it's satire, right? Because she right. so badly wants to be a gothic heroine, but... You're in the real world, baby. Right. No, but if Austin takes art by making taking gothic things and making them then real, and what would right. happen if this gothic scenario was real? So I was just wondering if anything like translated to the the gothic um, twist, essentially, like now, the, the Austinist twist on the gothic situation. Right. So, for example, if you wanted to make Anne Elliot to me, to have her be more of like a gothic heroine. And this is also drawing on kind of fairy tale tropes, but her mother dies, her sister and her father are cruel and spoiled, which they are, 
but if they had made an Elliot like a Cinderella, then we could, you know, if she had been acting like a servant, if she had to sleep uh... in the servants' quarters, if they'd forced her to wait on them, if she was not given the privileges of an equal family member in terms of wealth and status, now we're getting more into a kind of gothic. But for her, it's just sad that she's no. surrounded by but cruel she is, people. She is mistreated by her family, and that's why I think gothic's taking... Uh, Austin is taking, like, the gothic style of mistreatment and saying, this is not realistic. Mistreatment actually looks like this. Yeah. And sort of saying that... I, no, I, I, th- I see what you're saying. What would be very interesting to study, I think, is why the gothic novel became the mainstay that it was. And I think I know the answer. I think it's because to make sense of the everyday cruelties and hardship of life around people, it was easier to confront it in fiction with the extreme version. Yeah, making it very exaggerated. Yeah. Having and George slay the dragon, right? The right. the menace all around you is a catharsis, right? Right. Where no matter how horrible things are, it's like, well, at least I'm not <laughs> right. <XYZ. laughs> at least I'm not penned up in like this evil villain's basement. You know, yeah. the Watsons set on by highwaymen and taken against my will. Yeah, exactly. The Watsons as that little fragment has one of the sisters, Penelope, I think is her name, thwarted in marrying the man she loves by the other sister who is jealous, putting out some lie. If I'm, I've read it once, so I, I could be getting the details slightly wrong. But the idea of someone being so evil and just duplicitous that they're actually sinking the character of one of their family members by spreading lies, that also strikes me as sort of a, a gothic way to go. Yeah, that's very juicy. Yeah, it's very, very juicy. Messy. Soap opera-ish, right? Very soap opera-ish. Right. Was there anything you highlighted that I didn't give you a chance to talk about? Um, sure. Let's talk a little bit about, and really it's just an excuse to read this fun passage, where Jane Austen, within Northanger Abbey, is able to give a big middle finger to everyone who says that novels are <laughs> a waste of time. <laughs> It starts where she's the narrator is talking about how Catherine and Isabella like very quickly became great friends and they would read together if the weather was terrible and they couldn't go outside. They would basically just hang out and read novels together. And then she goes off, yes, novels, for I will not adopt that ungenerous and impolitic custom so common with novel writers of degrading by their contemptuous censure the very performances to the number of which they are themselves adding. Where (laughs) I guess what would happen is you'd be a, a novel author would be like, yes, I know this is just a stupid novel and kind of disparage their own book. But she specifically says, I'm not going to do that. Let us leave it to the review. <laughs> Let us leave it to the reviewers to abuse such effusions of fancy at their leisure and over every new novel to talk in threadbare strains of the trash with which the press now groans. 
Um, and she basically just goes on to be like, yeah, novels are great. Don't be ashamed for reading them. And now had the same young lady been engaged with a volume of The Spectator instead of such a work, how proudly would she have produced the book and told its name? Though the chances must be against her being occupied by any part of that voluminous publication of which either the matter or manner would not disgust a young person of taste. So if you're reading a book, you're embarrassed by it. And the, the books that you would proudly hold out as reading are actually not interesting, not doing anything for your mind. So why be ashamed of what you like reading? No, and I think it's really interesting where she's like novels have talk about the realness of human experience in the best chosen language because while she's here parodying gothic bad literary conventions, she is uplifting general novels, not just her own. But novels in general up to a higher plane by saying there's some really good writing out there. Well, she's and, basically agreeing with the mission statement of our podcast. Yeah, she is. And sort of trying to, you know, as we're saying, like Edgeworth and Bernie and everybody putting out these these stories called a moral tale or a little book or a little work. Man, call it a novel because novels are awesome. Yeah. But I do want to contrast now that's in the very beginning. When Catherine is firmly in the I love novels, I love gothic stuff <laughs> phase. And I just want to contrast that with the end after Catherine has been on this whole, you know, her whole arc of self-awareness and understanding of the world around us. And she and um, Austin writes, charming as were all Mrs. Radliff's works and charming even as were the works of all her imitators. It was not in them, perhaps, that human nature, at least in the Midland counties of England, was to be looked for. <laughs> in the central part of England, there was surely some security for the existence, even of a wife not beloved, in the laws of the land and the manners of the age. Murder was not tolerated, servants were not slaves, and neither poison nor sleeping potions to be procur procured like rhubarb from every druggist. <laughs> Among the Alps and Pyrenees, perhaps there were no mixed characters. There, such as were not as spotless an angel, might have the dispositions of a fiend. But in England, it was not so. Among the English, she believed, in their hearts and habits, there was a general, though unequal, mixture of good and bad. So guess what? Catherine has come to the realization that everyone has some good and some bad. It's the choices we make. She's basically Harry Potter. Thank you for coming <laughs> to my TED Talk. No, it's true, but I think it's so Henry. It's Henry's little speech about we are English that makes yeah. her draw this distinction between English people. I mean, it's his influence coming in over her. But also, she's smart enough to know that she doesn't have any experience as to what people are like in the Alps yeah. and Pyrenees. So maybe in these exotic lands, there are actually... <laughs> it's an, listen, it's an people. open question. Yeah, yeah I'm not going <laughs> to speculate. I'm not going to speculate without any knowledge on what people are like <laughs> in the Alps and the Pyrenees. However, in my experience here in England, people are good and bad. It's sort of this like very English suspicion against the French, isn't it? <laughs> and she's also brought into she's so I think funny. <laughs> I know she's so funny, and it's also brought into John Thorpe saying that Radcliffe, I believe, married an immigrant. He's like she married an immigrant. Once I heard that, I knew what he's kind of stuff it had to be. Dick, he's just <laughs> and he's like such a horrible person. 
Right. He's he's a terrible. Yeah, exactly. An old man playing a seesaw. I don't know. I've never read Sir Charles Grandison. Maybe I should pick it up. Um, with regard to- on that too, where she's like, what does her having married an immigrant have to do with it? She's yeah, just like, I, I don't understand why you're saying this. To me. She doesn't oh. understand like these, this racist joke he's making. Oh, and no, and he's also, I'm sure this is not the intent because like racism is not even like it framed in the same way in Austin's time necessarily. But um, he also says that Mr. Allen is as rich as a Jew. As a Jew, there's like anti-Semitism in there too. He's just a xenophobe, which also does not speak well to his character at all. And I love the narrator. This critique, the justness of which was lost on poor Catherine. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just so. Uh, but I promise you that those are very. I mean. Austin is very precise in her language. Those two specific xenophobic examples are purposeful and they are meant for us to not like him 100%. It's really interesting. I mean, certainly in Evelina, uh, when I read that, there was a strong anti Semitism in there, um, which is not great. Yeah. Uh, Well, two things. First of all, the xenophobia is meant to make him unlikable. And also, I guess what you would call boorishness. Yes. The way that he talks like that in front of her is also meant for you. I mean, he says damn all the time. And oh, it's yeah. got oh, the line drawn through it because yes. you, know, you couldn't actually write that. It's so unacceptable to swear. She can't put it in the novel. Yeah. Um, and so uh, everything that John Thorpe says is intended to make him not likable to the reader. Yeah. In the, uh, Austin herself, I'll just add this to be a completist, but for people who don't know, she had French relations. She had French, a French cousin who she was very close to. So, oh, but didn't everybody in England, weren't they all related to people? <laughs> I mean, come on, the Norman invasion was in 1066. Everyone in France and England was related if you go far enough back. Oh man, you know so much more about history than I do. The Norman invasion... I couldn't have even told you what it was. Oh, well, see, let me tell you. This actually came up the other day. It was a plot in something that we were watching, the uh, the Norman invasion of England. And I started babbling. I was, Bay was like, the what? And I'm like, Bay, Battle of Hastings, come on. <laughs> and he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I had, the reason why I've always pinged on it is um, – my grandmother's phone number, the last four digits were 1067. And so the way I always remembered it was that it was one year <laughs> off of the Gorman. And I'm just a big nerd, you guys. Well, William the Conqueror, Battle of Hastings. Don't people just know this? No, <laughs> they don't. I'm just a big nerd. Also, I had an older brother and he loved English history. So. Well, on that note. Well, that was a big tangent. I'm so sorry. If okay, you want, no. I'd be happy to tell you the history of Williamsburg again. <laughs> Always a delight, always a joy to hear your historical, uh, Maggie has a history degree, so uh, she's doing much better than I am. On that note, should we sort of leave it here and transition to the wheat sheaf? Yes, but I would like to talk more about this book if we could. Do you think that there, here's what we'll do, here's what we'll do. Let us, at our next meeting, discuss the movie from the 1980s. Yes. And that will allow us to discuss the book more as well. Yes, I can't wait to talk about this BBC adaptation. From- I am not looking forward to watching it. <laughs> oh, you are going to, it's a barrel of laughs. You are going to find uh, it hysterical it and wacky and weird. There's a saxophone solo. I mean, it's just wacky as heck. Um, 
And so it's a delight. I mean, it's delightful. Will it so, pair best with white or red? Oh, a white. Okay. Not even not even a question. Okay. Um, so shall we go to the wheat sheaf? What's in the wheat sheaf? Several things. <laughs> several things are in the what? wheat sheaf. Do you... You know what? Why are you laughing at me? It's just, it's just what's in the wee sheep? You sang it. I don't know. It was funny. Um, uh, yeah. We always said we need a theme song, so you've. Um... No, I don't know. I think it should be more like go down to the wee sheep. <laughs> Kristen, what's in the wee sheep? Did we already talk about Yuzini's article that we posted on Facebook about how? Uh, the five Bennett daughters represent the stages of grief. Wow, I don't remember talking about this at all. Yes, so if you haven't, um, if you weren't on the Facebook page when we posted this, um, Yuzini, our listener, wrote this fascinating article about Mr. Bennett. Interesting. So is Lydia when you denial, maybe? Interesting. I, I, I don't know if I want to spoil the whole... Okay, article. don't spoil it. But I'm now I'm like, my mind is feverishly... First of all, I'm trying to remember the stages of grief. Yeah. <laughs> so Jane Bennett represents, like, denial, right? A uniform, it cheerful... so. Yeah, right. And Elizabeth would represent anger. She's certainly angry about the state of her parents' marriage. And then... De- depression and acceptance so it's like kitty is sort of a disappointment and lydia is just sort of acceptance of her insane behavior he's like i i i can't deal with this anymore i just accept the situation um and mary's bargaining she's saying he he might have mary might have been at the stage where he was trying to negotiate his marriage and see if he could make it better um, but I thought it was really interesting. And although obviously, you know, Jane Austen wouldn't have been aware of the theory of the five stages of grief. I just really liked the lens. I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the article. It is published at the Jane Austen Liter- Literacy Foundation in issue 60. And it's called Domestic Happiness Overthrown, Mr. Bennett and the Five Stages of Grief. So I'm sure if you just Googled Mr. Bennett, Five Stages of Grief, it would pop right up. That is really interesting. I don't necessarily ping on it intuitively myself, but I'm willing to be convinced. Yeah, it's by just reading a, it. a fun lens to sort of yeah look at it through. Or maybe even like the way we view human experience in general, not just grief. And so let me see what else we have got because I just clicked away from the stupid thing right when I was supposed to be. Oh, yeah. So we heard um, from someone who was at Jasna, but we did not meet her, Agnes. Oh, no, Agnes, we missed you. <laughs> um, and we sort of characterized Jasna as very academic, but she just wanted to make put it on record that there are many people who have given breakout sessions and special interest sessions in the past who are not academics, but just people who love Jane Austen. So, oh, yeah. Hope- I, well, oh, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to imply that to do so you had to be an academic mm-hmm. but I did feel that the topics in the a lot of the more academic in nature were, yeah we're academics so but just wanted to get that on record thank you Agnes next time <laughs> yeah. say hi 
And um, we also recently heard from Anna, who I haven't written back to yet because I am a troll who just cannot get my act together. Um, but thank you so much, Anna, for adding your enthusiasm and enjoying us on your commute. And she says, um, our discussion on Mansfield Park made her appreciate the novel in a, in a way she quite frankly did not at all before she listened to it. So I count that as a... This is a thing. Now I can die happy. Like my, my mission in life has been fulfilled. Yes. This is Kristen's entire reason for living. (laughs) It's to spread the good word. She just goes to ding dong. Hello. (laughs) My name is Kristen. Have you read Mansfield Park? (laughs) Have you heard the good news? Have you heard the good news? (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a minute to talk about Mansfield Park? I know it. And um, I don't think we yet talked about um, Emer. I'm hoping I'm saying your name right. Um, who wrote to ask us about our opinion of the the Paltrow Northam version of Emma, the adaptation of Emma. Because while we did a movie commentary, we did not necessarily do a normal like episode review of it. So that might be something we'll do in the future. We've also had requests to do many requests, and I apologize we still haven't gotten to it, to review the Davies Sense and Sensibility from 2008. So that is on our docket for sure. Oh, yeah. I remember that one. These all came out... Um in that same like six month period. <laughs> yeah, they were doing, I mean, yes, that was the plan. Them they out. Were like, yeah, they were every night. Breaking them out. Yeah. So some that, better than others. I think that one's more difficult to get your hands on a copy. Uh, no, it's on, uh, you can get it on, I mean, you have to pay for it, but it's yeah, on you Prime. Can't, it's not like streaming or rent, like you have to purchase it, right? I think you can rent it, but um, okay. I'm not sure. But yeah. I, when I remember last time I looked for it, it was before streaming options were so widely available. Because that's only been in the past couple of years that it's really, like Amazon's just basically made everything able. If you pay money, you can stream it now. We also had several requests to watch the like 1970s adaptation of Emma. And I have to admit, never having seen a single scene of it. So we'll have to put that on our docket as well. Hmm. Maybe if we ever do like a Patreon or something like that, we could make that an extra. You're going to ask us, you're going to ask people to pay us to watch that. <laughs> yes, because it sounds shitty. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, we probably will never do that. But I'm just saying, like, <laughs> do you know which one adaptation I haven't watched in so long is the Laurence Olivier Pride and Prejudice I haven't seen it since high school still have never seen it that one we do need to watch it's a gap in my education for sure it's gonna be crazy though with those like gone with the wind costumes they had left over (laughs) I heard that was a myth this I don't know if it's a myth but this is why everybody thinks that Jane Austen's a Victorian author because they kept doing adaptations where they put people in Victorian clothes right Right, right. And by the way, I'll just add that um, I I bought the 2005 reprint of Pride and Prejudice from 19, or excuse me, from 1897 that Hugh Thompson illustrated. Yes, 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 yes. And it has the, his illustrations, and it also has illustrated first letters of the chapters. You know how the first letter right. of the first was really big, and it has been such an incredible delight that I strongly recommend 
it's by like Dover Press or something, and it's it's a 2005 reprint. And the only thing that disappoints me is the cover is is not the peacock cover, but everything else is the faithful reproduction. And I found an ebook of Mansfield Park that Hugh Thompson did, but he did not. It does not have the first letter illustrated. Uh, that I know. I was really looking forward to those. But um, I, anyway. I loved the uh, the pictures you've shared of them. Oh, yeah. They're so cute. Yeah, yeah. I should share more since it's not under copyright. Hey. Uh, hey. <laughs> yeah, so any who anything else to add? No, just a big thanks to everyone who writes into us. We always do love reading your emails and messages. It's always so fun. It makes us feel like we're not shouting into the void. Yeah. <laughs> People actually enjoy this. We we passed 30,000 downloads, which wow. is hard to wrap my mind around. So oh, thanks. Bay, sorry, Bay told me that I should be sure to make an announcement that if we have any German listeners, you should please uh, send us a message. Um, was it firstimpressionspodcast at gmail.com? That's correct. Uh, because he and I will be in Germany for almost three weeks in December. And he's like, you should do a message and we can meet up with someone. And I looked at him and I said, what if they're crazy? That sounds like a good way to get murdered. (laughs) And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, I'm a woman. We don't just meet people that we see on the internet. But we did it, Jasmine, and everything worked out great. So, listeners... If you happen to live in Germany, drop us a message and maybe you can meet me in Bay while we're traveling around your lovely country. We're doing a big loop and going through most of the major cities. So send us a message and maybe we'll see you. Um, He speaks German, too. If you're not great at speaking English, Bay speaks German. So there you go. So he can translate for you. And I'll just, like, you know, shove beer and schnitzel into my face. (laughs) You guys are going to have an awesome time. I'm really excited for you. I hope so. Okay, Kristen, what do we say? We have delighted you long enough. Bye.